The fight against climate change has some powerful allies. We're seeing some of the world's largest financial players starting to integrate climate risk into how they evaluate their portfolios. Stay tuned for a special branded episode of Global Translations presented by Citi right here on December 16th. And you know, it's funny, you were just saying, what's your nightmare? I have two nightmares. One nightmare is that we're going to end up in a war with China and that it's going to be the worst thing that could possibly happen to everyone in the world. And that we're just going to wake up one day and say, oh, we didn't mean to back into this. Here we are. The other thing is that what we're getting a taste of in COVID, that a year from now, we're going to find ourselves like in a food security crisis, in a technology production crisis, because those systems have broken down because of the pandemic so much that all of a sudden things we really, really need, we can't get. Both of those things, I think, are credible worries at this point, which is, <laughs> I mean, a year ago, would you have thought we would be here in 2020? That's Sharon Burke. She's an expert in national security and energy, a fellow at New America, and an alumna of the Pentagon and the State Department. And those things she fears, those nightmares, they have a lot to do with our vulnerability when it comes to the countries we rely on for our everyday needs, and especially how vulnerable we are to being cut off from critical supplies. And those supplies are used in everything, from our national defense to our smartphones. They're minerals, critical minerals. I'm Louisa Savage. And I'm Ryan Heath. In the first chapter of this podcast, we talked about the careful balance of global supply chains, how fragile they are, and how our tenuous trade relationship with China, and now the pandemic, have upended these systems. And, let's face it, our way of life. We saw what happens when global supply chains break down, making it hard to get masks and personal protective equipment, as well as rubber stoppers and glass vials that we need to manufacture and distribute vaccines. Don't forget about the freezers. We cannot forget about the freezers. But we're also dealing with a scarcity of natural resources, like critical minerals. Minerals that are limited and, once depleted, are very difficult to replenish. It's getting harder and harder to access these raw materials. That's a major problem for trade, for industry, and for the transition to renewable energy. Our big problem when you boil it all down is resource scarcity. So for the second chapter of this podcast, we're digging into critical minerals, how access is being rocked by all sorts of geopolitical factors. We're going to need to figure out new, more stable ways of getting these minerals, and fast. From Politico, this is Global Translations. I'm Louisa Savage. And I'm Ryan Heath. Welcome back to Apple Park. I am so glad you could join us today. In October, Apple announced the launch of the brand new iPhone 12. This is iPhone 12 Pro. You know, the industrial age was fueled by coal and oil and fossil fuels, but this information age is increasingly being powered by critical minerals. That's Sharon Burke again, the national security and energy expert we heard at the top of this episode. So if you think about these phones that we are talking into right now, where the computers that we're using the screens for, there's like a periodic table of elements in there. 
So your iPhone 12 or Samsung Galaxy or Google Pixel, it's like a periodic table of elements sitting right in the palm of your hand. When we crack open this chemistry set, we find all sorts of elements, all sorts of minerals and metals inside our smartphones. Yttrium, niobium, cobalt. Copper for good electrical conductivity. Rare earth magnets. Copper plated with gold to resist corrosion. Palladium. Indium for touchscreens. Tantalum for capacitors. Nickel. Batteries have lithium, cobalt, and graphite. Think of how many people own a smartphone. Billions. And every single one of those devices is made with critical minerals. Think of how dependent that makes us on these materials. Think about this, the smartphones that we're holding, the smartphone only hit the market in 2007, I think. I mean, the growth of these technologies has been so fast. In a way, we could be forgiven for being a little, you know, trying to play catch up because this market exploded so fast. And the same is for military uses, by the way. Precision guided munitions were sort of a boutique thing just a few decades ago. And now our, like, every application everywhere, we're always going to be using that. And it requires these minerals. The entire transition to green energy is tied up in this, and we'll get to that later this season. Sharon Burke says that deposits of these minerals can be found everywhere, so that's not the issue. So we have a lot of these minerals that are on that list of 35 in the United States. The problem is not can you find them, but can you find them in quantities that are commercial to mine? And also, you know, if they're not in really high quantities, they're really hard to extract in a usable form. These things don't just sit there in the crust. Like, I think we have all these mental images of the gold rush, you know, like these 49ers going out and just finding big rocks of gold. That's not actually how it works. All these minerals are buried in the rock and you have to find it, you have to crush it, you have to bathe it in acid and heat it to get the right minerals out. So how did some minerals get to be critical in the first place? For that, I turn to Dr. Nadal Nassar. He's the chief of the Material Flow Analysis Section at the U.S. Geological Survey. It's basically his business to know what's in the Earth's crust. The idea of critical minerals has been around actually quite a long time. It's been around at least since World War II, where the U.S. government has been concerned about supplies of, of commodities. Typically, this concern stems from issues regarding the concentration of production in a few countries. So think of it as holding all of your eggs in one basket. And as technology moves towards smaller, faster, lighter, smarter, material scientists and engineers are required to use more of these exotic elements of the periodic table to do to perform the functions that are necessary for some of these technologies. And so these minor metals are really produced in just a few locations, which causes concern regarding the stability of their supply. With these materials being extracted from so few locations, and some unstable locations at that, like the Democratic Republic of the Congo, or DRC, there's definitely reason to be concerned about supply stability. Let's cut over to another expert. Let me start with the national security, national defense implications of rare earths, which are 17 minerals that have names that are hard to pronounce and nobody knows anyway, but are crucial to things like high power magnets, which go into the control mechanism for cruise missiles, for instance. That's Tom Dusterberg, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. He works on 
public policy issues related to economics, manufacturing, and high technology sectors of one sort or another. And these days, many of those issues inevitably involve critical minerals. Night vision goggles also uh, require rare earth metals, a number of other uses in uh, the defense product sector. More broadly in the uh, overall economy, rare earths and some related, somewhat obscure mineral metals like magnesium and gallium, ytterbium and things like that are used in a number of sectors. One that is very prominent these days is semiconductors. The United States has a lead in the technology of both designing and producing semiconductors. We have a huge trade surplus in that. We export a lot. But crucial materials there, are, again, are various kinds of rare earths. The solar power industry, the solar cells use rare earths and related. The telecommunications sector relies heavily on semiconductors that are made with a different sort of rare mineral, which is called gallium. An important emerging sector is the lithium-ion battery sector which powers the cell phones that are ubiquitous, they power computers, and increasingly they're going to power electric vehicles. But there's a major problem with needing all of these mined minerals. China controls a fair amount of the rare earth and related important mineral resources we've been talking about. The United States imports 80% of the rare earths that we use from China, and China supplies about the same amount to the rest of the world market. And that's certainly nothing to sneeze at. I mean, China has stakes in mines in places like the DRC, and they capitalise on their refining abilities at home. In the bowels of the earth, men dig through the mud for gold. This country is endowed in minerals, copper, uranium, diamonds and cobalt. China mines some of those metals internally, but they've been aggressive through their Belt and Road Initiative in acquiring mining resources around the world, especially in Africa and uh, South America. Right now, China has a very strong advantage in a lot of these minerals, and particularly in rare earth elements. Back to Sharon Burke. That doesn't mean we couldn't mine them and produce them here, but right now, China really has a corner on the market. China has also been very strategic about investing in other countries that have advantages. Burke says that China's strengths in critical minerals are threefold. Geological advantages, strategic investments in other countries, and strong processing capabilities at home. So even if a country produces these minerals, they're almost certainly shipping them to China to be processed at this point. So the market is really dominated by a small number of players at this point. That doesn't mean it has to be that way. There are other players entering the market and other players who have been in the market all along. But China has definitely got a strong advantage. Drought, flooding, wildfires. These are the stakes of climate change. To avoid disaster, many corporations, multinationals, and countries have committed to reducing greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2050. I'm Heather Clancy. On a special branded episode of Global Translations presented by City, we learn how the finance sector is helping facilitate a low-carbon transition through sustainable financing solutions. It's clear that that's where we are headed, that's where we have to head. For a bank like City, that involves developing and executing on pretty ambitious plans on both the opportunity and the risk sides. Tune in December 16th, wherever you listen to this podcast. 
China's Belt and Road Initiative is the most expensive infrastructure project in history. Chinese companies are building roads, pipelines, and railroads around the world. But the initiative is also building China's influence. The Belt and Road Initiative is really a key part of China's aggressive strategy to ensure they not only have access to critical minerals, but that they use them to dominate emerging technologies. China has a very integrated industrial policy, if you will. They want to build out high-technology industries, and they already built out basic manufacturing like steel. But the Belt and Road Initiative is essentially the external part of their overall economic policy. They're building roads, railroads, for instance, all the way into Europe, ports around the world to places in Europe, Africa, Latin America, where they think they can sell products, but also to get access to the uh, basic materials that they don't have within China itself. And cobalt is just one example of a type of mineral that they need more of. China has a goal of producing 80% of the electric vehicles that it goes into its domestic auto market by 2025, I think. And they're well on the way to at least controlling the battery production that goes into that. So it's all an integrated policy to both grow their own economy and find markets around the world and the necessary resources that they need to power their economy. Grabbing hold of the raw resources, bringing the material home for refining, and directly feeding processed minerals into manufacturing have made China a one-stop shop. So given that these minerals are found around the world, how did China come to be such a dominant player? Why not the U.S.? I think that this was part of a global economy that was really prizing efficiency and global efficiencies and just-in-time production over anything else. And also, the Chinese deserve a great deal of credit for being farsighted. They saw that they wanted to have a vertical production. They wanted to own the raw resource, but also be fabricating the batteries and all of that. And so, you know, they had a very strategic approach to this, whereas ours was dominated by a private sector that was operating on different principles. And it's still a very powerful investor. And the United States companies are present in Brazil and everywhere as well. But the Chinese had a national strategy to really lean into their natural advantage here. So there's nothing nefarious about it. You know, it was what they determined was in their national interest and where they could have a global comparative advantage. And they were right. Look, it's got to be said. China doesn't have the most stellar reputation when it comes to playing by the rules. So China has natural advantages and farsighted strategy, but they've also done some things that aren't so laudable, which is they have very lax environmental regulations and they also have very low exploitative labor costs. So those are things that would not fly in the United States or in Western countries. And so their advantage isn't all for the better, for sure including some exploitative practices in other countries, such as Congo, that also would not be permissible for companies that have to answer to a stricter rule of law. So that's part of their advantage. Some of those practices not only involve low environmental standards. They're digging in trenches and laboring in lakes, hunting for treasure in a playground from hell. But also the use of child labor in the DRC. Hard enough for an adult man, unthinkable for a child. All the while, the U.S. has gotten very comfortable with the status quo of the global market, that the prevailing prices and relationships would stay put. But Burke thinks that there's some dangers to those assumptions. You know, it's funny because a colleague of mine and I tried to pitch 
I don't know, like year, three years ago, four years ago, a whole war game where we wanted the American players to come as though, okay, tensions are escalating with China and we're coming for a fight. We're bringing our artillery. And the Chinese just manipulated trade in raw materials and in industrial capacity to end the war before it ever started. And we could not get anybody interested. We couldn't get anybody to fund it. It's just like... You know, now all of a sudden people are interested. And one of the things you're going to see is all these people who have a vested interest are pouring in to say, oh, my God, we should totally do this. Um, But that sort of longer term question about, well, wait a minute, let's pull this apart and make sure we understand it is already sort of getting lost in the crash. As geopolitical strife rises between the U.S. and China, critical minerals are a strategic concern. So what are the competitive implications of China's dominant place in critical minerals? For the future of the green energy industry in the United States, for the future of producing electric vehicles in the United States? Here's Tom Dusterberg again. A few years ago, China threatened to cut off exports of rare earths, not only to the United States, but to Australia and Europe as well. In the last 10 years, they haven't done that, only threatened to, in very subtle ways, again. So if we are going to have dynamic industries like I talked about, and since your question focuses on on green technologies, look at solar energy, look at the electric vehicle industry, we're going to need access to those resources that go into those industries. And China, by the way, has targeted each of those industries for dominance, both within China and as export markets. So if we are going to have a vibrant green economy, we need to have reliable access to all of those minerals that we've talked about. And if relations deteriorate with China, uh, as they have been for the last little while, last four years, for instance, that could put us at a real disadvantage, not only in green energies, but in high technology industries in general. Back to Sharon Burke. So from what you're saying, would it be fair to say that China has become sort of like Saudi Arabia and oil when it comes to these critical minerals? You know, yes and no. I think the Saudis have a really strong advantage for a variety of reasons, including that they just have huge reserves of light sweet crude that are easy to produce, relatively easy to produce. So it means that their production costs are really low. And for a long time, before fracking, nobody could produce the way they could. But these minerals are in a lot of places. Just not everyone has been producing them. Again, the demand has happened so fast. So, for example, the Chinese cut their exports of rare earths in 2010 to Japan over political disputes. And it sent out just a huge ripple across the entire global market. And all of a sudden, with prices rising so sharply, production rose in other places. So it's a little different in that China really couldn't necessarily pull off or sustain a monopoly. There is a lot of minerals in a lot of places. And if the prices go up enough, a lot more people will be producing them. That's all to state the obvious. Yes, tensions are high with China. And yes, critical minerals are becoming a bigger and bigger part of that sensitive relationship. So there are supplier, but there also are geopolitical rival or military rival, and that rivalry keeps intensifying year after year. So how do we balance those two facts? We need their supply, but they're also a national security rival for us. 
I think that there are three ways to look at that competition and rivalry, which is, you know, has the potential to be very dangerous and be more than just a, a competition. The United States needs to improve its production of minerals at home. And that has potential to create a lot of jobs. And I think that we should do it in a way that's innovative and clean, in a way that China never would, so that that'll be our comparative advantage is that we do it better, we do it right. But at the same time, we shouldn't just put up high protectionist walls and just come home and be isolationist about this. It's important for the economic viability of that market and also for our relationships with the rest of the world and our own strategic well-being that we remain invested in the rest of the world. So we should also have a more diversified strategy as far as where we source these things. And, you know, for example... The United States has made some agreements with Australia and Canada to improve production. I think we should be looking to work with other countries, with Brazil, with Congo, with others. Remember Dr. Nasser? Bridges, buildings, and pipelines would not be as strong without vanadium and other... Back in June, Dr. Nasser testified in a hearing for the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Medical MRI machines would use more energy and produce lower quality images without helium-cooled, niobium-based superconducting magnets. And during that hearing, he explained his work looking at the kind of risks that mineral supply disruptions would pose to American manufacturing. The disruption would cause, first of all, a higher price for any of the commodities on the market. It would also potentially cause, if there are no stockpiles, for example, it would potentially cause, and there are no alternative sources, no no substitutes, it would cause a stop in production, potentially. And what would that mean for manufacturing here in the United States? So it could potentially, if these manufacturers are not able to find an alternative and they don't have anything on hand, they would have to stop production of, let's say, a vehicle or electronic device. And so the consumer would not be able to access it or would have to pay a higher price to be able to access it. Well, that would be a pretty big disruption to our economy, wouldn't it? It could. And that's one thing that we're working on right now is to try to understand uh, different scenarios, which commodities would cause what kind of disruptions, what would the impact to GDP be? and which industries in the manufacturing sector would be affected the most. Mm. You can imagine that there are a lot of ripple-on effects. So if you disrupt permanent magnet production, it might not be purchased directly by the automobile manufacturers, but it's purchased upstream of them. And so they would get a ripple effect if the supply chain is disrupted at the front. Things don't have to be that severe, though. In fact, Sharon Burke says there's still the possibility that we could work with China on minerals access. There's no reason we can't also keep collaborating with the Chinese and being a market for them and they're being a market for us. And I think that's important because at the end of the day, we're competitors, we're increasingly rivals, but we don't actually want to go to war. And we have a lot of global problems that our countries have to solve together, such as climate change. And so, for example, the need to get these minerals, you know, in more production to support a global energy transition, but also for them to be cleaner So we're not just recreating the polluting effects of fossil fuels. That's something that great nations can do together. And so I think we can have it all, right? We can diversify our our supply chain. We can improve it at home with more jobs. And we can also use it as a confidence-building measure with China. There's no reason why we can't do all of that. There's a whole litany of metals, rare earths, critical minerals that if we lost access to them, we'd be in a world of trouble. From that long list of materials, cobalt is one that stands out. It's surrounded by controversy. 
and primarily sourced from the Democratic Republic of Congo, a country that's often in turmoil. And because it's a key ingredient in making batteries, it's at the heart of the clean energy revolution. Scarcity, China's quest for energy dominance, and the pandemic are all making cobalt supplies more precarious. Obviously, aerospace is an evolving industry. The military aspect is obviously growing. But what's transforming the cobalt industry is just the sheer scale of electric vehicles and what it will do to the market. That's on the next episode of Global Translations.